0: Dear Father in heaven, we give you thanks on this Reformation Day for your word that endures forever and for Martin Luther and others who have helped to continue to proclaim your glad good news. Lord, as we study your scripture this morning, we pray that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts and minds that we may believe you more fully, trust you more deeply, and follow you more eagerly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so uh, we're actually in Leviticus 6, picking up um, with verse 8. And uh, I mentioned last week, there's kind of a, um, just a little wrinkle here in terms of the outlay uh, of our English Bibles, where in the Hebrew Bible, um, chapter 6 starts with verse 8. In the English Bibles, for whatever reason, they added seven verses from chapter 5 yeah. to chapter 6. It's kind of confusing, but suffice it to say, we're at chapter 6, verse 8, and here we're starting a new section. So up to this point, we've been looking at the, the different offerings and sacrifices. We're going to continue to do that for chapters 6 and 7. However, it's from a slightly different vantage point, And I'll talk more about that um, shortly and how that um, affects the way that we read and understand what's going on there. But before we get into that, I want to introduce today's topic um, by talking about flags. And in particular, the, the proper ways to dispose of a flag. Raise your hand, how many of you know the proper way to dispose of a flag? Okay. A, few, a few of you do. I mean, what's that give it to the Boy Scouts? Yeah. Well, that's, the, that's <laughs> the simplest way. So um, I was looking this up, and I mean, there's a lot of details. This was on the, I think on the VFW uh, website, American Legion website. It says, one, the flag should be folded in its customary manner. Two, it's important that the fire be fairly large and of sufficient intensity to ensure complete burning of the flag. Three, place the flag on the fire. Four, the individual or individuals can come to attention, salute the flag, recite the Pledge of Allegiance, and have a brief period of silent reflection. Five, after the flag is completely consumed, the fire should then be safely extinguished and the ashes buried. Number six, please make sure you're conforming to local state fire codes or ordinances. I like that they put that last rather than first. (laughs) Question for you though, why go to such trouble? I mean, that seems like a huge pain to get rid of something that, well, what's the big deal? You know, it's a piece of fabric. Why do we go to such great lengths? Why why are we encouraged and indeed uh, held to such high standards when it comes to disposing of the flag? Why go to all that trouble?
1: To honor it.
0: Okay, to, to properly honor it. Good. Other thoughts? Think of this through the lens of Leviticus, too, right? Because... This is, this is has a kind of Levitical feel to it, doesn't it? Like here's the you've got to burn it, you have to burn it completely. It Tells you what to do with the ashes, what to do with what's left. I think it's because we recognize this is a this is a, a sacred symbol of what's been called our civil religion, right? As as Americans. And of the flag, which is our holiest symbol, if you will, right? The most set-apart symbol that we want to properly honor and revere, even and perhaps especially when it's at the end of its lifespan, lifespan, when it's been, you know, tattered and torn like the one we saw in the picture. And the fact of the matter is that we, the way that we care for things that are special, set-apart, honored, reverent, says a lot about how we treat those things in, in their lifespan, Right? The way that it's been said that the, you can tell a lot about a culture by the way that they honor the dead. And uh, I think there's a similar truth to be said about the way that we dispose of those things that we regard as special, even holy, in a, a worldly kind of sense. Does that make sense? Uh, as we get into Leviticus chapter six, um, which I call, has a section of what I call holy leftovers, okay? Um, what to do with it. I think this is helpful to keep in mind. Uh, That there is a proper reverence, piety um, to show toward those holy things. And if it's true in the case of our flag, as it should be, how much more in the case of the things of God? So we'll we'll talk about that. But go ahead and and turn to Leviticus 6, verse 8. And what we have here, it's going to be covering again some of the ground that has already been covered in the previous chapters. But you might think of it like this. Um, in the, our hymnal, in the Lutheran service book, <clears throat> there's all the stuff that we read and sing as the gathered assembly. But there's also what's called the rubrics. Okay, now rubrics comes from the Latin word. I think it's rubrica uh, for red. It was a color of um, ink that would be used from the from the ground where it had kind of this red hue. And so, um, in the old times, as my son would say, um, when they would be writing the church books and the church manuals, they would write the directions for the preacher, the presider, the leader of worship in red. His rubrics, these are kind of the stage directions, if you will. Here's what the leader is to do while the congregation also is, is singing and participating. And you have some of it in our hymnal itself, but then also in the altar book, the, the pastor's book that he uses, there's even more. There's all these directions. Here's what you do. How, here's how you lead worship, et cetera, et cetera. Here's how you dress. Another thing that comes up in this section. What we have in chapter six and seven of Leviticus is kind of like those rubrics. Now it's, it's especially directed toward the priests, toward the leaders of the congregation, how they are to care for these holy things of God how they are to administer these sacrifices, and so forth. Is that a helpful analogy? So you'll notice that it it seems kind of repetitive. It's redundant. We're covering some similar things, but it does it from a slightly different perspective and with some um, added nuances and emphases. So go ahead and and turn then to um, Leviticus 6, picking up with verse 8. I'll read uh, that first paragraph there. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying... This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen garment undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place." The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. All right. Now this is really significant. Before we talk about fire though, I want to draw your attention to a particular word. Notice in verse nine, command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. Then again, in verse 14, if you glance over, it says, and this is the law of the grain offering. And then once more, in verse 25, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, this is the law of the sin offering. This is the first time that a very important Hebrew word has shown up in Leviticus, the word that's translated as law, and that word is Torah. Let me hear you say Torah.
1: Torah.
0: Torah is a very significant word and it's almost always translated as law in our Old Testament scriptures and that's just not a very good translation. It's not a very good translation because it gives us this impression, it shows up again and again and again, that God is just utterly focused on law, 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 law. And of course, there's a lot to say about the law in the scriptures. But it gives us too narrow-minded of a focus if we just think that Torah is law. Because, think about this, Psalm 1, for instance, Um, says, blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, etc. but his delight is in the what? The law of the Lord. And what's the word there? Torah. His delight is in the Torah of the Lord. And on his Torah, he meditates day and night. It's not strictly speaking in Psalm 1 saying that the blessed man delights in the Ten Commandments, although that's true, right? Um, It was, we say in the Confession, in the liturgy, right? So that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. That's that's true, but it's broader than that. So number one on your handout, Torah means teaching. At its most fundamental level, it just means teaching, the Lord's teaching. It comes from the verb yara, which means to teach. So Torah is what is taught. It's the teaching of the Lord. And so I just I'll I'll mention this uh, periodically. Anytime I'm I'm, uh, teaching on the Old Testament, it's important to recognize that Torah doesn't just mean law in the sense of "thou shalt" or "thou shalt not." Okay? It's it's broader. It's more expansive. Could even be translated as revelation. Okay? God's revelation, His instruction, His teaching to His human creatures, and that's significant in the section of Leviticus too. It's not just giving "thou shalt" and "thou shalt not," but His teaching, His instruction about the significance of these sacrifices and what they might symbolize and the the theological weight that they carry for the people of God. Any questions about Torah, the meaning of Torah and how it's used in the the scriptures? It's a word that's also used um, for the first five books. Uh, Is that what you were going to ask, Carla? Yeah, it's also used for the first five books, um, the the books of Moses, uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy which also go by the name Pentateuch, okay? that's kind of the Latin name for it. Um, but uh, Torah, when it speaks of the Torah, it's talking about those first five books, okay? Yeah, Cor? The Torah is, is a Jewish word or a Hebrew word. Hebrew word, right? right. I thought they had a lot of words for, you know, like love, the Greek one. They got about 10 different words for. Yes. explain love. Yeah, there. no, it, it's true. They only got one for. Yeah. Right, no, uh. English is very starved for uh, words in in some respects. And you talk about love and how Greek has, yeah, I mean, several words to describe love. And Hebrew does, too. Hebrew has at least three and probably more than that. Um, But when it comes for God's teaching and his revelation, Torah was kind of the go-to word. And it shows up a lot in the scriptures. Okay, well, let's talk more about this fire here. Because... Number two on your, your handout, God wants the heart and the hearth to be kept kindled. Okay? Um, this would have been, I think, symbolically significant for the Israelites in multiple ways when he, God tells them the fire of the altar shall be kept burning. Now, of course, it's a practical, there's a practical purpose to it, too, right? You've got to keep the fire going so that you can do the sacrifices, right? So you can you can continue to offer those up to the Lord, but what might be some of the symbolic significance to that constant fire? What else does that call to mind for you when you think about the scriptures, the biblical narrative? Yeah, Esther. Well,
1: we got in our sanctuary the eternal fire representing God's presence.
0: Cool. Okay, so um, Esther points out in the the sanctuary you might not even notice this because unless you're really looking for it, you don't think about it. But there's a candle um, that's called the eternal flame, right? right? That's always kept lit. In our case, it's kept lit artificially. (laughs) But um, traditionally, it would even be, it would be a candle that would just be lit at all times. I think it's hearkening back to this teaching from Leviticus. Go ahead, Carter. When the apostles were instituted, there yes. was a fire above their head. Oh, you mean like this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, good. I hadn't
1: quite thought of it like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that does look pretty cool. But um, Okay, so we'll, more on that in, in just a second. What else might this symbolize? I think especially for the Israelites of that day. Yeah, Bill. There, there's
1: continuity from the time the fire is lit yeah. all
0: through every offering is being burned in the same fire. Oh, good. I like that. It doesn't go out then a new fire. Sure. It's, it's the same fire. I hadn't thought of that one. That's good, too. It's be, uh, Bill said it's, it's the same. It speaks to that continuity of God's character. I am the same yesterday and today and forever. Um, so he's, he's the I am, right? He appeared in a flame to Moses out of the, out of the burning bush. said, I am. So I like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Somebody.
0: Okay, that's interesting. Uh, court says when somebody dies, you say the the fire the fire went out. That flame in the heart. Yeah, the pillar of fire. The color of fire. The say pillar. more about that. oh the pillar of fire. Yes, good. Yeah, the pillar of fire. Right. So God, as He was leading His people through the wilderness, He was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Right. So in many and various ways, the fire was um, symbolic of and significant for the Israelites in evoking God's presence, right? I mean, that's the the fundamental feature of the fire. But what I thought I heard you say was the color. And so, you know, Reformation Day we've got our red too. So this ties back to um, Court's point about Pentecost, right? Because now that fire, the fire of the Spirit has come down and dwells on the people of God, right? So at at Pentecost, we um, are anointed with that holy flame and the Reformation Day is red because it's continuing that, it's a, a feast of the church in many ways, right? It's a festival of God's continued presence with and, and faithfulness to his church from age to age. And, I mean, this was, you think of also uh, in Luke 24, when the um, disciples were walking along with Jesus on the first Easter Sunday, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures, now that flame continues to be lit in the hearts of his disciples. And uh, from a great hymn from Charles Wesley, I believe. This is a Pentecost hymn. Come down, O love divine, seek thou this soul of mine, and visit it with thine own ardor glowing O oh, Comforter, draw near within my heart, appear and kindle it thy holy flame, bestowing something like that. <laughs> there was a there was a comment on our church's YouTube page. I'd say I read those when they pop up, but there was a comment that said, "Great service. The pastor misses a lot of notes." <laughs>
1: That's exa- I'm sure. That person
0: had to be a I'm musician. I'm sure. Yes, exactly. I don't take it personally. Um, but how do we fan the flame? How do we continue to fan the flame? And I don't just mean, you know, like the eternal light in there. But when it comes to the flame of faith in our hearts and in the hearts of others, what does that look like? Keep the, keep the flame burning, he says. Share the word. Okay, sharing the word. That's a great way that we... We keep fanning the flame by sharing it with others, right? A flame is not lessened when you share. In fact, it it spreads. We were just in Southern California. They know all too well about how these things work, right? Yeah, good, sharing it. How else do we keep that flame burning? Through
1: the Word.
0: Okay, just through the Word, through reading it, through studying, through hearing it. Every time we're reading the Word, it's, what are those things called? The bellows. The bellows. the, The bellows get going, yeah. How else? Going to church, yes. Coming to, Well, because, I mean, you think of it this way, coming to worship is kind of like a one-stop shop of all these things that fan into flame, right? Whether it be hearing the word, singing, the assembly of the believers, coming together, receiving the Lord's Supper, all of these things are ways that we fan into flame that gift of faith. Yeah, anything else that comes to mind? The Holy Spirit is like wind. The Holy Spirit is like that, that wind. Wind. That feeds the flame. That's exactly right. Just keeps it going. Keeps it burning through prayer and through prayer as well. Absolutely, uh, Luther has a, um, a analogy where he talks about um, sometimes when our heart, if our heart is like dead coals, then he says, "What I do to enliven those coals are prayers of thanksgiving." Yeah. And those prayer, prayers of thanksgiving suddenly. It just enlivens them it's like you know poking the coals mm-hmm. where we remember, we remember all those gifts of God that are all around us small things big things whatever and I think that's such a great great practice continue the prayers of thanks. anything else?
1: Yeah. watching the Martin
0: Luther okay watch, watch your Luther movie yes good uh, all these things and I think it, it's important too that um, you know talk about coming to worship how we do this, how we help one another, right? It's not just about how we stir up our own flame, but we help to breathe that life into one another, right? Because now you carry that Holy Spirit too. And as Sandy said, you know, we, you have that holy halitosis. <laughs> you, you're able to, to breathe that life-giving breath to each other through encouragement, through godly encouragement and admonishment as we seek to, to follow Christ Jesus. So in these ways and many more, we keep that flame lit, keep the fire burning. All right, the next one, next section now, Um, this is super, super significant, not just for Leviticus, but for the whole of how God works. Starting with verse 14. This is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that's on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat, shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their holy portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. And note this, whatever touches them shall become holy the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "This is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed: a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening, it shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed and bake pieces like a grain offering, and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons, who is anointed to succeed him, shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned." Every grain of a priest, every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Okay. So the thing I want to key in on here is that line in verse 18, "Whatever touches them shall become holy. God imparts holiness through touch, through touch. We've talked about how he does it through taste, through eating. We see that in this section as well. But there is a strong emphasis in Leviticus on the power of touch for good and for ill, right? We've talked about how um, people could become polluted when you touch a dead body, when you touch an unclean thing. But the reverse is also and even more true, that God's holiness is able to, so to speak, override our unholiness, our uncleanness, and make of us holy. Now, in the Old Testament, you get this impression that it seems like it's pretty much an even sort of thing. Like if you get you know, holiness and profanity, uncleanness and what's common, that uh, those things kind of go head to head and it's not clear what has the upper hand. Is it holiness? Is it uh, uncleanness? Or what have you? But when we get into the ministry of our Lord Jesus, we see, and once you notice this, you see it all over the place, how significant touch was to our Lord. All throughout. I mean, what does any particular story come to mind or moment in the Lord's ministry come to mind where touch came into it? Thomas. Oh, good, Thomas. All right, and what was Jesus' word to Thomas? Touch me. Touch, yeah. See the wounds, touch my hands, touch my side. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, another story about touch is when the woman read... Yes, good. The woman, the woman who was unclean through all the hemorrhaging, right? If I can just... Touch him and then she touches her and she's healed. Yeah. Any other stories that come to mind? Blind man. The blind man, right? We heard this recently. And you know, Jesus touched him. Not only that, but Jesus will you know, one of these, and touches Good him.
1: Good thing he couldn't see what
0: he was doing. Good thing he couldn't see what he was doing. That's right. Jesus, what's that noise you what are you doing there? Um, and then what I think is maybe the most significant one of all. And I just wanted to, if, if I can get the sound to work here, I want to show a clip from the show The Chosen talked about many times before. But there's this powerful moment uh, from the Gospels that is recorded here. And you'll know the story as soon as we see it. I, it's just so beautiful, I think, how it demonstrates this power of touch. So let's see if I can get this to work for us here. yep,
1: yep the leopard.
0: No, 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 no. no, no, no. <laughs> no. Not to spoil this beautiful day or anything, huh?
1: <laughs> Come on. Mr. <coughs> huh? Lepper, stay back! Cover your mouth, don't breathe in hell! Come any closer, it's okay, John. It's okay. All right, right. I need to okay. cover this disease. I don't turn away from me. I won't. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Only if you want to, I submit to you. My sister, she was a servant at the wedding, she told me what you could do. I know you can hear me if you are willing. Please just tell me this one
0: thing. Uh, But what do I tell
1: people? How show yourself to the priest. Let them inspect you and see that you are cleansed. Make the proper offering in the temple as Moses commanded. And go on your way. What's an extra tunic? Just
0: one of you, just want to you. That's enough. <laughs> oh, so beautiful. Uh, just I think powerfully captures that moment and just that kind of uh, aversion that they would have had to the leper, right? Unclean! Keep him away. Uh, but Jesus crosses that divide because his holiness overcomes our uncleanness. Of course, well, much more to say about Leviticus, or about leprosy when we get to uh, Leviticus. I think it's chapter 11. But uh, this, we just see that. And even as it quotes faithfully from the scripture, Jesus tells him then to uh, honor the teaching of Moses, right? And the sacrifice that was commanded then. So an interesting kind of tie-in there. But anything else that stood out to you about that, about that clip, about that story or Jesus's work with touch there? If you haven't seen those before, the episodes are all available free online. So I really encourage you to check it out. Search The Chosen either on YouTube or on its own website. And just really powerful, powerful stuff. Faithful to the Gospels with, I would say, some sanctified conjecture along the way. But, I mean, the line that they have in there, which is not in the scriptures, but I think is faithful to it, is, you know, the man says, Please don't turn away. Please don't turn away. And Jesus says, I won't. I will not. Um, in, in, the, yeah.
1: in the story in the Bible, does Jesus kneel down to the level of the person? I, I, or was the person standing
0: kneeling? Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't believe it's... Uh, oh, let me see. It's in Matthew chapter 8.
1: The only reason I ask is, yeah. I think in prior lessons you've said, you've made a point of saying that invariably Jesus comes to the level of the person.
0: Sure. He comes there. down to us, right.
1: Yeah, he to
0: our level um, it, yeah what it says is a bo- the leper came to him and knelt before him saying Lord if you, can, if you will you can make me clean and then it just says Jesus stretched out his hand and, and touched him okay. no, it say, but uh, I think it's not uh, um, it wouldn't be far fetched to think that he, the Lord did that I want to extend this discussion of touch because I think it's it's significant. It's relevant in the times that that we're in, in you know, COVID era times where there's a lot of debate about you know, well, what does it really matter to have in-person ministry, you know, and a ministry of, of touch. And there was uh, this uh, article or editorial in the Wall Street Journal uh, last week, a couple of weeks ago, um, asking the headline says, "Are internet services as good as church?" Okay. Um, and I just want to share a little bit from that article. It says, uh, this was the beginning of the article. It says, last year, pastors Henry Furman and Jerry O'Sullivan of Shelter Rock Church in Nassau County, New York, began working as TV preachers. Right? They All became TV preachers. No, I don't even have an airplane, so. Um, for, months, for months, they live streamed sermons as COVID-19 ravaged the leafy communities of Long Island, where their church has several campuses. After overcoming the hurdles of digital worship, They now have a new problem, how to wean the congregation off the convenience of online church. They aren't alone. 75% of evangelical Protestants in the U.S. have attended church online during the pandemic, according to a recent survey by Infinity Concepts and Gray Matter Research. We found that 45% of those who experienced online church services now believe that worship online is equal or superior to the in-person experience. 45%. Uh, so, so and so. Only 44% want to return exclusively to in person worship, according to the report, which surveyed more than 1,000 evangelical Protestants. Uh, what is gained, what is lost with online worship? That's why I want to talk about that for a minute because, I mean, when we see how significant, how important touch is to the ministry of our Lord, to the teaching of the scriptures, our, our personal. Interaction uh, with the uh, pastor and sure. the congregation. Uh huh. Per- the personal interaction, pastor with the congregation. The sacrament. The sacrament. Oh my gosh, this this is the big one that I think, especially when they talk about with with evangelical Protestants. you know casting any aspersions on our our evangelical brothers and sisters, but there just isn't going to be the emphasis on the on the Eucharist, right? And and receiving the Eucharist is something that you do from time to time, and even when you do it, it's a a symbolic sort of thing, so that would be a big part of it. Yeah, let's say
1: this is a, a thing that was on Facebook because mm. I don't know if the source really, of all good. Yes, uh, yeah, you know, they, they don't lie on Facebook, right? Obviously. <laughs> um, but this one I thought was really good as church attendance numbers fade across the nation and online services become very convenient, it's important to remember why church attendance for you and your family matters so much. You can't serve from your sofa. You can't have community of faith on your sofa. You can't experience the power of a room full of believers worshiping together on your sofa. Christians aren't consumers, we are contributors. We don't watch, we engage, we give, we sacrifice, we encourage, we pray by laying hands on the hurting. We do life together. The church needs you and you need the church.
0: That's really good. That's great. I don't know what it's got against my couch, but other than that. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: <laughs> uh I that's so good. I mean, uh, you can't you can't serve from your sofa. You can surf from your sofa. You, can surf your sofa. you can't serve from your and just what it said too, I mean, um, I'm I'm glad that we're able to offer the the online service, right? And for those who aren't able to make it, I mean, poor Connie, bless her heart, couldn't be here today on Reformation Day. I'm glad she was able to watch it from home. But could you beat being in that sanctuary and singing thy strong word together? Like, I don't know, gave me chills just Mm -hmm. being there. Um, But even apart from that kind of chill factor... We talked about the sacrament. I love that I mentioned the laying out of hands. This isn't something we do a ton in Lutheran circles? But it's very, uh, very much a biblical idea. Again, that ministry of, of well, touch. even
1: just touch you know. Yeah, hugging, hugging, hugging the right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: The kiss oh. of peace. We'll be yeah. bringing that back. No, uh, <laughs> but this was. I mean, that is the precursor to like the when we the sharing of the peace. It was the kiss of peace. Paul talks about that sometimes. That's what they would do. Did yeah. Lincoln call call the online service? I don't remember. Something derogatory, no doubt. Probably,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, before my mother-in-law became a Christian, yeah, um, because we were going to church and right. whatever, and something was said, and she said, well, can't you miss church just one Sunday? Mm. And I said, no. I said, <laughs> no, I, I, and I told her why. I said, or she said, can't the church get with, go without you one Sunday? Mm. That's mm. what it was. And I said, yes, they can go without
0: me one Sunday, but I can't go without them. Yeah, good. I mean, it was. Yeah, that's that's really good. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we had a bunch of group a group from St. John's Wheaton today, and Pastor Nelson was here, and the other pastor at that church, Pastor Scott Scott Brusick. And I love a thing that I've heard Pastor Brusick say. He says that the the ministry of the church is the extension of the touch of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. We're we're continuing that touch of Jesus to our community, to our neighbors, to one another, right? Touch is vital. Yeah, so, uh, yeah go ahead, court. Uh, well, I didn't want to interrupt you. No, go
1: ahead. I think when we lose somebody wow. in the family, a mate or something,
0: yeah.
1: there's just nothing like going to church and the
0: people. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. Yeah, Court points out when we lose somebody, there's nothing like being able to you know, go and, and see one another. Now, we could also, we're not going to rabbit hole there today, but the discussion of, you know, cremation versus, you know, having the body present, uh, I, as you would not be surprised, you know, lean toward having the body present when possible. Um, and one of the reasons why is because well, to be able to see and to touch the body, can be, uh, the, the dead body, can be very um, helpful and even therapeutic for um, I mean, that's just one reason. There's more to it, but we won't go down there today. But any, any other thoughts on just that touch of Jesus, the touch, uh, how that's important in the ministry of the church?
1: Yeah. And just to comfort and encourage one another. Sure. You know, when, when you sit next to somebody and maybe put your hand on their arm mm-hmm. or something, it's comforting. It, know, it's and comforting, it's yeah.
0: And so here's, So here's my homework or my challenge for you all. If there's somebody that you've noticed has not been in church for a while, I'm preaching to the choir here, obviously, right? You're here. Um, or if I'm you know, recording this, if you're listening to this later, and you have been away from, from church, um, come back. We'll, uh, be here. Be with us. Um, you know, we, we can make accommodations. We can do things to try and, and, and help folks. Uh, but you, you need it. And so I encourage you, reach out. If you know there's somebody, I haven't seen so-and-so for a while. Reach out to them this week. Say, you know, reach out and touch someone, you might say. Uh, <laughs> but um, in- encourage them, speak to them, or even if it's not somebody from our church, you know, who's someone, a neighbor, somebody in your life who needs the touch of Jesus, right? Because that's what we're doing. We're extending that ministry of the Lord's touch. Okay. All right. Last, last section of the, the chapter here and back to uh, uh, where we started Number four on your handout, disposing of leftovers is no mean business, all right? So, starting with verse 24, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law, the Torah of the sin offering, in the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord, it's most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it, in a holy place it shall be eaten, in the court of the tent of meeting, this is how you shall dispose of it, whatever touches the flesh shall be holy, again that touch. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled, what should you do with that? It shall be broken. But if it's boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It's most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. Look at all, there's, and this is just one section. We could have talked about this at, at many junctures, but how important it is to the Lord, what do you do with leftovers, right? What do you do with these elements, disposing of them? God doesn't just say, you know, just you know, toss in the trash, no big deal. But instead, there's this emphasis placed on how shall you reverently care for the things of, of God um, that have been used in the holy place, they're made most holy by their contact with the Lord's holiness. What shall you do with it? And the church, from the very beginning, continued this same emphasis and focus in caring for the holy things of, of the church, especially when it came to the sacrament. Because maybe you've never thought about this. Like, well, what do, what do we do with the extra elements of, of the sacrament? What, how, do you, how are you supposed to handle these things? Um, it may surprise you to learn that people have thought a lot about this stuff over, over the years. This is a picture, for instance, of an ancient uh, piscina. Uh, it's a Latin term. It actually comes from the word for fish, okay, um, or fish pond. Uh, but a uh, piscina, well, um, Carla and others could tell us what, what this is, but basically, it's a special sink, okay? It's a fancy sink. And um, any guess, those of you who haven't heard of this before, what's special about this sink, do you think? Okay. Don't use to to dispose of the of the elements. And yeah, they go, right the they go right into the ground. So it goes directly into the ground. It's a special sink. That's how. And what's interesting, you have to really. I mean, as you can imagine, you kind of have to have in mind you're going to put a piscina in from the beginning when you build, right? It's hard to retrofit it and put put that in. I'm, I mean, you could do it, I'm sure. But um, this is this is kind of the the idea is that it would go directly into the ground. Now we do not have a piscina here at Trinity Lutheran, um, so if anybody's interested in you know a fun project, you want to work on that. Um, but when you don't have a piscina, what is the the proper way to dispose of the um, the consecrated wine? Okay, because this has been used. I mean, this is the the whole in the holy place, um, touching the altar, the very blood of Christ. You don't just you, know, you, you shouldn't just treat it like any other thing. So there's two ways that that's typically um, disposed of. Well, three three ways. So one is um, for that which hasn't been um, uh, used, it can be reverently held apart for a next um, uh, sacrament, for a next time receiving the Lord's Supper, or I'll use it to go and visit homebound members. Okay, that's one. Secondly, I uh, can drink it. Okay. Now this is kind of I know. This is where pastors and priests have gotten themselves in trouble over the years, right? (laughs) Oh, gosh, somebody's got to finish this off. But done reverently, that's another way to do it. I mean, Lord willing, you don't have a whole lot extra, right? I mean, this is part of um, why, I mean, our altar deal is so good about this, of keeping records. How many people can we expect? So we're not just trying to, you know, overdo it, but have a right accounting. And then the third thing and this is what, you guys, this is what they do each and every week. If you're not part of the altar guild, you've got to have mad props for Yolan and, uh, Kathy, do you do altar, altar Okay, you, you, you do baking, which is also very important. And, um, and Carla and others. Um, so each one of those little individual cups, they rinse out uh, in the water. And then that the water with the um, consecrated wine, that was, I mean, even just the little residue, right, from having drank it, is then poured out back into the ground. Okay. Just go, go outside outside the, the vestry and pour it back into the ground. That's the other um, proper way to, to dispose of it. And as far as the hosts go, the, the bread, again, you can eat it or set it apart for the next, uh, reserve it for the next communion um, in that way. But you don't mix up the consecrated and the unconsecrated. You keep them separate. You keep them apart. Um, so there's all these details. So I, I put a thing up here, but all the guidelines for after the service is from the um, uh, Altar Guild manual. And there's just, I mean, it's so many details, even more than from d- disposing uh, disposing the flag of uh, all the things that you kind of do. So, Carla, is there anything I've forgotten that is bears mentioning too, just in terms of that reverent um, care for and um, disposing of the helmets and so forth? No, I think
1: you've
0: trained as well. Oh! <laughs> so I do have one question. Yeah. Um, the gluten free. We have wafers that yeah. we
1: use. There are some that are just crumbled, and we don't know how to dispose of them properly. It Seems to me they
0: need to be burned. But. Burned, yeah, or eaten. I mean, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that would probably be the best best way to do it. Okay. But uh, it just it speaks to the significance of the sacrament, the value of creation, the stuff of creation that we don't just pitch these things, right? It matters how we, how we regard the, the holy things of God. The way that you treat that, it, to go back to where we started, the way that you're going to treat those elements is the way that you're going to regard the Lord. If we just treat it all like trash, the very body and blood of Jesus, ah, just throw it away, no big deal. Then that's going to transfer to our attitude toward the Lord, even in a, a subtle, kind of slow way. Go ahead, Leslie.
1: I always found it interesting that after the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, yes. that they picked up these... Baskets full of food. Yeah. When, I, when I'm thinking of baskets, I'm thinking like a bushel basket. Right, but I right, may right. be wrong on that. Yeah. And I always wondered what they do with them. Right. You know, is there are there any thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think that I mean, if uh, if we were thinking in a Leviticus lens, what would you think that they did with the leftovers? I think that it was used to uh, to feed the apostles. I mean, uh, I think that it, they carried that along. Uh, you know, what are we having for lunch today? Lord's like. We got leftovers, you know, <laughs> everybody's favorite meal. <laughs> um, that would be my first thought. It's possible they burned it Did as well. But. They had
1: one basket per
0: a disciple. That's yeah. a great point, point. 12 basket. baskets. Ugh. Yeah, okay. so definitely not keto-friendly, no. but, uh, you know, well, I get, you got the fish, I guess, So okay. as well as the bread. Um, but this is, uh, I, I've always been fascinated by that as, as well, Leslie, and, just how there's that, those why, holy leftovers. Why didn't
1: they even have leftovers? I mean, you know, he could have, they could have done it so that yeah. each person had enough to eat. Presumably. There was
0: nothing left. I, I can't remember if I've, I've preached on this or I've written, I think I've written about it. But there's one other interesting little thing here and I'll, I'll leave you with this. So in John's account of this, Jesus says, make sure that you pick up the leftovers so that none may perish. Okay. And it's the exact same Greek phrase that's in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so John is very deft in many ways. He'll do kind of symbolic things, things with double meanings, right? And I think when it comes to the feeding of the 5,000 and the leftovers in particular, I, I tend to think that it's John at least gesturing toward this is what the ministry of Jesus is about, He doesn't want any, he doesn't want there to be leftovers in the kingdom, right? He wants that none should perish, but that all should be gathered in, to gather the scattered, which is what we're about here at Trinity Lutheran too. How can we gather the scattered? How can we bring neighbors together in the the peace and the fellowship of Christ? And that's what we're doing, continuing that touch of Jesus in our day-to-day lives. Happy Reformation Day, guys. Thanks for being here today. It's great to have you. And look forward to All Saints Day next week. God be with you.